0: first day. And God said, let there be a space between the waters, between the oceans and the atmosphere. And it was so. God called the space between the waters and the sky, and there was evening, and there was morning. Let the dry ground appear. Let the land produce vegetation, plants, and trees and flowers of every kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the sky to separate the day from the night. To mark seasons and the days of the years, and to give light on the earth. And so he made the sun and the moon and the stars and all the galaxies of the universe. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, the water be filled with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the sky. So God created every creature of the sea, and every bird of the sky, and he saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures of every kind, big and small, mighty and meek. Wild and tame, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to rule over all the earth. So God created them. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and it was so, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, and on the seventh day God rested, and there on his throne in heaven God saw all that he had made. And it was very good.
1: Are you kind of excited to start this thing? Let's get the story rolling. It's kind of like story time. It's like, yeah, let's get it going. I am too. I really am. And uh, did, you, did you do your homework? Did anybody read the chapter? I hope you did. Raise your hand if you, if you read the chapter. All right. So I'm gonna, I know who to call on and you'll be better prepared for the pop quiz coming up a little bit later. Get a book if you don't already have it. Hey, I know folks are still coming in. There's lots of seats. How come the front row is always empty and never fills till the very end? I don't understand that, but there's actually room in the front row, you guys, and other seats over here. So So we're beginning today. A kind of epic adventure, really. A a, a cruise, a a trip through the entire Bible from beginning to end. We're using as our tool this book called The Story, which is 90% of the Bible. Uh, 90% of this book is the Bible. It's a carefully kind of selected... Um, group of the Bible's classic stories woven together in a kind of chronological narrative. So it reads as one seamless novel. It's like a Bible reading plan all in a book. And it's going to, if you, if you open your heart and mind and you open this book at the same time, so much of the scriptures are going to come alive to you. I think three things will happen. You'll, you'll know the story of God. A lot of us don't know the Bible as well as maybe we think we do or we've just never had opportunity. So you're going to know the story. But more importantly, you'll know the God of the story. And that's what we want to see happen here, isn't it? I hope you'll open your life to uh, this opportunity. Don't miss this spiritual growth moment for you and your family. Jump in with everything you've got. And you'll also, it'll also change your story. Uh, I think that's one of the important things that needs to happen is we need to just figure out that, you know, the Bible isn't some collection of old, you know, fairy tales that has no connection to life. These things are going to help us know how to live our own life. And the only way you will figure out how to have meaning for your story, your life, is as you find its place in God's story. And that's what we want to do. We want to figure out how does your story really makes sense and how is it gonna play out and that's gonna happen as we get into the story. So so be here every weekend you can. Make it a commitment. Make it a priority to be here. Bring someone with you. Invite. It's a great time to invite some friends. Get the book. They're ten bucks. We'll give you two. Give one away for the price of a five dollar foot long. You can give the bread of life. Pretty good deal. Uh give as many away as you can. Uh commit to getting together with some others to talk about this. Connect up. We'll help you. We'll give you resources to get in a group all of that kind of stuff. Um, So, uh, let's just, let's jump in. How many of you would would recognize the name John Wooden if I said the name John Wooden? Just raise your hand. Yeah, so a bunch of us, not very many of us. He's a great coach. He died just a couple years ago. Great man. He's a coach of the UCLA men's basketball team, and he went to like a bajillion championships and was just one of the most legendary coaches. So he had this momentum going, and he'd recruit all these top flight athletes from around high schools all over the country. And they would come into his program, and he's kind of legendary for something he did on the first day of their first practice. They're kind of thinking, "Boy, what am I going to learn? Some insight about basketball? I don't know, and so forth." And the first thing he did was he would always start by saying, "Gentlemen, today we're going to talk about how to put on your socks and tie your shoes." And he would proceed to demonstrate how to do that the way he wanted his team to do it. And he was just convinced that it was a fundamental foundational building block. And if you didn't get that right, a lot of other things could happen. You know, you get blisters or you have unnecessary timeouts or it's going to get an injury to your ankle or something. So, you know, he started there and it worked for him. He built a bunch of championship teams. Chapter one of the story is God's version of this is how you Put on your socks and tie your shoes. It's a foundational building block, and so many other things are going to come out of some understanding that we're going to gain today, uh, and, and it's going to really be important that we get it started in the right way. One of the things that you're going to see as a kind of thread throughout the story uh, is, is that there is often going to be a confrontation with an earthly dilemma that just begs for some kind of heavenly solution. An earthly dilemma that, that begs for a heavenly solution. And I, this happens all the time. In history, it happens all over the world. It happens all through the story. It happens in your life and mine. Those moments where you figure out that what you're up against, you can't fix. That moment when you, are, you, you realize you can't solve something and you, just would, you need help from outside of your own resources, that's an earthly dilemma that begs for a heavenly solution. And we're going to talk about that, that scenario as that thread is very visible in chapter one of the story, which is Genesis chapter one through nine. A lot of material to cover. Genesis means the beginning, and we're going to begin at the beginning. And let me start with act one. I'm going to kind of describe three acts today for this chapter and the first one goes like this can be summed up with these words God creates everything and it's all good okay you know how people sometimes say it's all good it's all good that's what's going on here God you get to say it now God creates everything and what it's all good. It's all good. That's what's going on. So open your Bible to Genesis chapter 1-1. I've always wanted to say, open your Bible to page 1. There you go. And you, or you can open your storybook. if you, Whatever you brought with you, they're both, they're going to read exactly the same. Here we go. And every great piece of literature always starts with a bang. And the Bible's no exception. It starts this way. First sentence of the Bible. Here are the first four words. Are you ready? In the beginning, God created... The heavens and the earth. First four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. It draws our attention immediately in a very purposeful way. As the curtain is pulled back, at center stage, there is a lone figure with a spotlight on him. It is God. God is the main character in the story. And you got to know that right out the gate. It's where our attention must go. He is presented as the source of and the reason for all things. The, the creation of life flows out of Him and is for Him. And He is the creator of all things and every one. And out of this formless void and nothingness with a word without lifting a finger, God calls this cosmos to attention. There is no explanation of where God comes from. I can't explain that to you. That's beyond my my pay scale. But um, so, everything starts here with God and that's a pretty big deal you got to get your socks on right about this or there's a lot of other parts of the story that aren't going to make much sense you're going to get into the game and then you're going to have trouble if we don't get this straight if you do get this right then the rest of the story will make more sense and guess what the story that is your life will make more sense as well so it's a good time just to sort of step back and ask yourself you know do you understand and believe that behind the origin of all things is God? God. Now, you don't have to know anything about how it all happened. You don't. To be a good Christian, you don't have to know the first thing about when this took place. Some people like to talk about how and when and all that. I got questions about that, but that, that's not what Genesis is about at all. Genesis is saying God did this. We're here on purpose, for a purpose. You're not an accident. That's what it's trying to say. And however it happened and by whatever processes, God did it. So you got light and sky and apple trees and grass and dandelions and all of that. And God says, it's good. You got the moon and the star and the skies that we saw in the video. And God says, it's good. You get seahorses and manatees and, you know, hummingbirds and crabs and all that stuff. Yellow-bellied sapsuckers and ferrets and hummingbirds. And I already said that raccoons and grizzly bears and all of that stuff is there. And it's, God says, it's good. And then the cat, that's after the fall. We'll get to that later. But um, I'm just teasing you. So it's all good. I'm just kidding. Just lighten up. Good grief. Psalm 24. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and he established it. That's, that's pretty important. James 1.17 says it this way. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Just as God gives, gives sunlight on your shoulder. Every good grace gift you have in your life, everything that's good and beautiful is from God. It all originates there. And then all of that is just a warm-up act to him rolling up his sleeves and creating human beings in his own image. And then when he steps back, he says, now that, that there is very good. A change in the rhythm to signal that there's something special about the people he made. He calls us into relationship with himself. And that's very good. Genesis 1.26, let us make humankind in our image and likeness. Now, a lot of people get tripped up here about the word our because it's plural and they think, oh my goodness, does that mean there's lots of gods or something like that? It's like, no, it doesn't mean that. There's no more monotheistic religion than the Jewish faith out of which Christianity grows with these texts. No, when it says, let us make man in our image, it's just a literary way of saying that. Like if your kid comes and says, hey, can I have some money? You might say... Uh, well, we'll just have to see about that, won't we? And you don't mean there's six of me, and so I have to go consult with the other me. No, you don't mean that. You just, it's a way of saying and it. It's what's going on here. Some think that when the Bible says, let us make man in our image, it is referring to the Trinity, the triune nature of God. And it's true in Genesis 1, verse 2. It says that the Spirit of God was there at creation, hovering over the face of the deep. And Colossians 1, 21, 16 says that Jesus was an agent of creation. It says that he was there. It says, for through him, Jesus, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. So you do have father, spirit, son, present at creation. It could be that let us make man in our image is referring to that. But don't miss the main point. That's not what that verse is about. What that verse is saying is that you and I and every human being is created in the image. Image of God. You're image bearers. We are image bearers of God, unlike any other thing in all of creation. All of creation bears a stamp of God somehow, doesn't it? His mark is there, his imprint, but uniquely, human beings bear the image of God. I don't know all that that might mean. What do you think it might mean to say that you somehow p- possess, in a way that no animal or plant does, the image of God? Could it be our creativity? Could it be our ability to think critically? Could it be our free will that we can choose to say yes or no to God and enter into a relationship with Him? Could could it be that we have a moral fiber to our being that no other creature does? We don't know exactly, but it, it means above all that you are created by God in His likeness and intended for relationship with Him. That's what He wants the story to be about. You and all people in relationship with Him. Is that your story? Is that how the pages of your epic is playing out? Now, I need to, to say here at this point that whenever we talk about creation, um, there's always inevitably some kind of discussion, heated inner discussion sometimes about the interplay between the Bible and science. Um, how, how did the world really begin? Um, how, how, how was it created, you know? What did it look like? If I was there as an eyewitness, what would I have seen? Uh, How long did it take? By what process did it happen? You know, did Adam have a belly button? All all these questions that everybody wants to get answers to. And science, you know, science's job is to say, let's have at it. Let's go try to get our answers as best we can. And a lot of people have concluded by what science has come back and said that sometimes that, well, that doesn't seem to sound the same as what the Bible says. And so people have concluded that the Bible and the sciences are at odds and that they can't agree. She reminds me of a little girl who asked her mom. She says, mommy... You know, where do humans come from? And her mom said, Well, the Bible says that God made humans in his own likeness, and that the first man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they had children, and their children, and they had children, and they had children, and so the earth got filled with people that way. She took that answer, but then she went and asked her dad a couple of days later. And her dad said, You know, when she said, Where do people really come from? He said, Well, millions of years ago, there was really nothing, and then there was a kind of explosion that happened, and that resulted in. Matter that came about and eventually that material life material came to life and, and then much later life evolved to the point that there were these ape-like creatures who evolved into humans Of course, the little girl was very confused because the two answers seemed very different to her She went back to her mom and she said, I don't understand mommy. I said, where were people come from? You said that God created us and daddy says we came from from apes and she said, oh, honey, I'm sorry Let me explain that I was just describing my side of the family and your father, your father was talking about his side of the family. So thus the tension with science and Christianity. Here's what I ought to say. I don't have a lot of time to, do, to dwell on this because we've got so much of the material to cover today. And there are great messages we've done here in the past that have really tried to talk at length about the interplay between science and faith. It's a very important discussion. But let me just say something that I hope will set a lot of people at ease and it's very liberating and important. Here it is. Listen, the Bible and science are not at odds. Okay? They're not. If you're reading something that says they are and they just are mutually exclusive or something, you're reading, you're reading something that's either science that's going beyond the realm of science to make some kind of philosophical faith statements, or you're reading something about the Bible that wants to make the Bible go further than it ever intended to go or say things that it doesn't, isn't trying to say. Friends, we're not afraid of truth. Anything, if science leads us to truth, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We don't have to try to argue against it if it's true. The creation and count in Scripture doesn't conflict with science because it's not about science at all, really. And science doesn't conflict with the Bible because the Bible is interested in telling us about God. The Bible's trying to say, here's who he is and what he's done and why we're here and how you can find meaning and purpose to make it in your story. That's what the Bible is about. And science can't even begin to say the first word about any of that stuff. They're just different spheres. They're different realms. So let's not pretend that science is going to help us and talk about things, you know, like that the Bible answers, like why we're here, or the meaning of life. But let's also not pretend that the Bible is a science book, like it's trying to answer questions that we have from a science perspective. So everyone be careful. Scientists, you be careful and when you start making belief statements and philosophy statements and take your presuppositions and you impose them like that theory is now is now fact. Be careful. Bible students, you be careful. When you try to make the Bible act like a science textbook, Because sometimes we just just want the Bible to kind of say what we want it to say instead of letting it just say what it's trying to say, which is, look at what God did. It's trying to teach us the meaning of things and, and life. It answers the questions of why Are we here? It answers what happened. God created answers who? God. But it's not particularly interested in questions of how and when and by what processes. Those are questions that nobody was really asking until a couple hundred years ago when the scientific revolution rolled around and taught us to think those are the most important questions. They're not the most important questions. So let's just. God created us in His image, which means, among other things, we've got a brain. Use that brain to be the best scientist we can be and let that come and serve the purposes of a great creator, God. Let's not try to use the Bible to bend it and twist it to get us to answer questions that we want it to answer. Let's let it come to us on on its own terms. And its terms says, God created and it's all good. Fair enough? All right. The Bible and science don't have to be at odds. Here's what the sciences can do. They can tell us all kind of thing about the creation and the universe that God made. And and when we hear and learn things from science, we don't have to be afraid or refute them or panic that it's going to weaken our faith. The opposite is true. Every amazing thing that science can prove is just all the more reason for us to say, well, great. Now we can see the handiwork of God even more clearly. See? I love Psalm 19. Psalm 19:1 says this: "The heavens declare the glory of God." You ever felt that way when you look in the sky? Like, "Wow! And your mind should go to God. See? This, the expansive skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, day, the Bible says, they're talking to you. You look up in the sky, it's talking to you. They, they, they pour forth speech. Night after night, every, t- every time you look up in the sky, they, they display knowledge. Anybody look in the sky the last few days? See that full moon that was up there? Now it's waning. I don't mean it's waning outside. I mean it's... Wait, never mind. So the moon's about 93% illuminated. But when you look up there, Romans 1 says, when you look at creation, man, it, it's going to tell you about God. If the heavens are shouting the glory of God, science just amplifies it. So, for example, what's, what's, um, what's the star that's closest to us, the star that's... Um, the the brightest to us, yeah, the sun. Here's a picture of the sun, really large star. Don't look right at it; you burn your eyeballs. Just kidding. So it's like um, pretty hot on the sun. Big gaseous ball of fiery stuff. Water boils at what temperature? Come on, 212 degrees Fahrenheit. The sun, 10,000 degrees. Pretty warm. Remember John Denver, sunshine on my shoulder, makes me crispy. If you get too close to it, it's just gonna burn you to. But God knew that and he positioned us exactly where we need to be, at ninety-three million miles away. That's where we are. A little bit further if you're in Minnesota, it takes the sun's a little colder there, but ninety-three million miles away. But when God said, Let there be light, he made it fast. So that when you step outside today and you look at your hand and that the image of your hand comes into your retina and into your brain, it's because there's light there that left the sun eight minutes earlier, traveling at how fast? The speed of light, which is what? 186,000 miles per second for eight minutes. That sun light traveled, reflected off your hand and into your eye. And it's huge. The sun is huge. I mean, it's it's a million times the size of the earth. Think about that. And so yet, you've got the Bible saying, like in Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The starry host by the breath of his mouth you've got something that's a million times bigger than the earth, 10,000 degrees, 93 million miles away, speed of light, and God just flings this stuff just like he's a star-breathing God. Now, that's not a science statement. Like, we don't have to go figure out well, how big is mouth, God's mouth. No, it's not. You're, you're missing it. Don't go. It's not science. It's saying, God is amazing and he made this. I love how Louis Guglio says it. He says, if the earth were the size of a golf ball, okay, the sun that we had on the screen there would be 15 feet in diameter by comparison. To make it clearer, let me just say this. You can put 960,000 earths inside the sun. That's amazing. It's enough golf balls to fill a school bus. And the sun is this massive star and friends, it's just one star. Among hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy called the Milky Way, which is just one of a hundred billion galaxies out there and the heavens, all of it declares the glory of God. Um, You getting this? I don't have time to tell you about all the all the rest. We, I'd love to tell you about Betelgeuse. How many of you know about Betelgeuse? Betelgeuse is another big star out there. Here's a picture of it. You can find it. Find Orion the Hunter. You see the red supergiant Betelgeuse just above and to the left. But it's only about 427 light years away. So if you want to go visit Betelgeuse this afternoon, you want to know how many snacks you got to pack. Just travel at 186,000 miles a second for 427 years and you'll be right there. Here's a picture of Betelgeuse close up. Betelgeuse is twice the size, not of the sun, twice the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun. Hello. It's big. So if you want to just, here's planet Earth. Find yourself. There you are. Hey, who's sleeping? Somebody's sleeping there. Find yourself on planet Earth and go up to New York City and put it down on the sidewalk in front of the Empire State Building, which is 102 stories, 1,500 feet tall. And then put not one, not two, not three, not four, but five more on top of each other. So you've got six Empire State Buildings straight up in the air. That's the diameter. That's the size of Betelgeuse. One star compared to the earth where you and I live. It's enough. Betelgeuse compared to earth. If you took golf balls and you filled Raven Stadium. Now, I didn't say goofballs. That happens later. That happens every weekend. If you filled 3,000 Raven stadiums, that's how many golf balls would go into Raven stadium. That's, that's how many earths fit inside Betelgeuse, which is one star in our one little galaxy. And there's a hundred billion galaxies out there. The heavens declare the glory of God. You can have all the science you want. You're never going to get your arms wrapped around all this stuff. And so I, I got it. I got it figured out. I know everything now. And it makes you feel small and it makes you feel like Psalm 8, which says, when I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars and Betelgeuse and Canis Major and Musefi and all these things, what are mere mortals that you should even think one second about us? Who, Who am I down here on this little golf ball that you should care for me? And yet you made us just a little lower than yourself. We're the highest crowning pinnacle of your creation among anything else that you made. You made us in your image and you desire me to be part of your story. Wow. If you start believing all that, it's going to change your story. You believe that God made you. Here's a picture of the God, God who made you when you're an inch long. Here you are two months old. There you are. Seventy five trillion cells in your body. And yet God put the DNA in you to make you who you are. If you took all the DNA in you and stretched it out in a line, that code that says this is exactly who that one in my image is. You stretched it all the way out. You know what? There'd be enough DNA in you to go all the way to the moon and back 178,000 times. That's what's in you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Here, here you are at five months in the womb. Remember that? That was a sweet old days right there. That was a sweet ride right there. Um, but things are miraculous and happening right there in the womb. A million optic nerve endings leaving that optic nerve center, finding finding a million optic nerves and matching up a million, finding a million and matching up perfectly. And you had sight, but it didn't do you any good at five months because you had these flaps of skin that grew over your eyeballs. You know, the most amazing technological advanced instrument on the planet is not your iPhone, it's your eyeball. But it doesn't do you any good at five months because you got this piece of skin covering it. But miraculously, at about month six, this little cutting device appears and perfectly cuts a little slit. And then you had eyelids right there in your mama's belly. Just one of the things that God whipped up. The God who created Betelgeuse and who knows the number of hairs on your head. And who knows your name and has your DNA string memorized And wants the blank pages of your story to be written so they can be part of his story. God created it all and it's all good. When you find your place in that story, it changes your story. So other things in the story, God creates a man and the woman. He brings them together and he says "It's, it's going to be great. Two will become one flesh. Genesis 125 says this, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's a good verse right there. They are both naked and they felt no shame. Sometimes we think, oh, they're naked. They should have been ashamed. No, no, no. It's saying they were naked. They were just who they were. And they had purity of relationship with God and one another. And it's all good. That's how we're meant to be. I hope you've got somebody in your life that you can just be you without trying to cover up and hide and change all the time. You don't have to get naked. Just be real with them. And that they love you anyway. And and I hope that you can feel like you can be that way with God. Instead of always hiding from God. Always kind of feeling ashamed and ducking around. And uh, trying to pretend that he doesn't watch and see what's going on. We want to be like Adam and Eve. Naked without shame. That's all good. It's act one. God created everything and it's all good. Act two goes like this. The the, The music changes. The tone gets darker. Sin messes everything up. And now it's all broken. everything starts falling apart we find ourselves with this earthly dilemma that begs for a heavenly solution john 10:10 says an enemy has entered the camp and he has come to kill and to steal and destroy he doesn't like the pure relationship with Eve and Adam that they have with each other. He doesn't like the relationship we have with God. He doesn't like anything being pure. Say, uh, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that? Are you sure about that? He, all of a sudden we have, we have a new voice that starts whispering a different storyline. Saying God doesn't know what he's let me, let me, let me. He doesn't know the story, let me tell you. You think about your own life and the voices that you hear and the choices you make about writing your story as you watch this little 5-minute video that'll capture this part of the story watch the screen kind of kind of chilling isn't it it's all broken now and the serpent just smiles and every one of us knows full well what it's like to experience what Eve experienced with a different voice in your head, whispering in your ear. You know, God doesn't really know what He's talking about. Distorting the truth or taking us another way. You know, that you could do better for yourself. I know that's what God would have you do, but this is different. This is better. Your story needs to go this way. Don't worry about His story. It's like a seed of sin that has been planted, not just in those two, but in their offspring right down to us. And everybody's got it. You see it in Cain and Abel. You know, these two, they started getting jealous about their offerings and one before long. Abel's lying there dead with his blood soaking up into the earth that God made. You see it. You see it in nature, which was meant to cry out in praise and celebration to God, which it does. But it also cries out in anguish and agony, waiting for God to restore and make the earth new again and fix the brokenness. The lakes aren't as pure. The air is not as clean. You see it. You see it in us. We're not as pure. We're not as clean. Our motives, our selfishness, all of that is contaminated and polluted as well. And the plentiful fruit that was to fill the earth and to feed the people. And now, you know, it goes to some and others die hungry at night. Image bearers of God die hungry on the planet. And whether you're talking about Syria or the naval yard or your backyard, Abel's blood still cries out from the ground. Whether you're talking about cancer or common colds or car accidents, everything's broken, everything's messed up. God made everything and it's all good, but then sin messed it all up and it's all broken. And we got ourselves a real situation here. We got ourselves in a fix that you can't fix and I can't fix. We got ourselves in an earthly dilemma that just begs for a heavenly solution. So number one, be on the alert, because the Bible actually uses those words, be on the alert, because you have a mortal enemy and his next target is you, because that's how he's going to get at his real enemy, God. He's out to seek, kill, devour, and and do stuff to your head and your brain without you knowing it, without you thinking it's just an ordinary occurrence like it happened with Eve. So be aware that you're a target because in the cosmos and in your life, things can go from it's all good to it's pretty bad pretty fast. And in the Bible story, the next chapters talk about the flood and all this stuff where... Where God just had to kind of hit a reset button and say, I'm just going to start this whole thing over again. But here, here's act one, right? God created everything and it's all act two. Sin messed up everything and, and now it's all act three. God promises to rescue, to redeem, to restore, to enter into the story so it'll be all right. All right. That's that's the amazing part of God's story. The earthly dilemma that begs for a heavenly solution is met by a God who comes and says is going to be all right. There's a, there's there's hope in God's story. And I just bet that might be significant if there's anyone in the room who might be struggling a little bit with the effects of living in a broken world. Which is all of us. It's good to know that there's hope when we struggle with our own sinfulness and the effects of the fall. I I heard a story one time about a painter who was painting a landscape, a very harsh, stark picture that wasn't very attractive. It was kind of a windswept scene with jagged mountain peaked with with snow and wind blowing and trees bending and ugly gray colors. And just watching it as the people were watching him, it was kind of a... uh, a not very pleasant painting but then he changed it transformed the whole tone and feel of the thing by painting in a little cabin in the foreground and then he got a brush and he put it with gold paint and he dabbed in the window of that cabin and the whole thing became an inviting warm picture because of that window of hope let me tell you something the first section of Scripture, this first chapter of the story is very realistic. The Bible's not a bunch of fairy tales sprinkling pixie dust around us and saying life's going to be all peaches. No, no. It, it, it admits that life is real life, that it, there, there, it will be broken and dark parts, and the serpent laughs and smiles while we deal with some very ugly stuff, even death. It's a bleak landscape. But God has taken his brush and he has put it into the story and he has changed the landscape. With God's story, there is always hope. And if you have that, it's a game changer. I want to leave you with three things that are windows of hope in God's story. And if you believe them and you make God part of your story and you part of God's story, it'll change your story too. Can I, I want to share these three windows of hope with you. Can I do that as we close? The first one, I'm going to aim you over to Genesis chapter 1-1, the very first pages of the Bible, right? It says this, say it with me if you know it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Now, notice how things were in verse 2. Now, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Those words, formless and empty, in the Hebrew language are, are, are these, tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu, and it's a word that literally means a kind of chaotic, swirling mess of nothingness. A disorderly array of darkness and chaos that is very unsettling and just agitated and filled with commotion. And into this, God speaks. And this is so significant because all of us can identify with this tohu vavohu, can't we? When your life just gets upended, when your life just feels like you're in a funk, when you feel like things are chaotic, when something's out of your control, when you have an earthly dilemma that you can't fix, whether it's a doctor's visit that changes your game, or you have to move, or something happens at your job, or in your finances, or someone you love dies, or a divorce upends your life, or a friendship struggle, we know what it's like, don't we? To have chaotic disorderliness and have times in our life where it just feels very dark, like a swirling mass of nothingness. I want you to notice what happens in this text. Chapter 1, verse 2. Now the earth was tohu vavohu, just like our lives are. Darkness was there, just like darkness clouds us over sometimes. But listen, the Spirit of God was there. God was there, hovering over the face of the deep. And God is in your mess too. God is there. No matter how chaotic it feels, you know you're not alone in God's story. He's also there hovering. And he's not just there to hang out in the midst of your chaos. He's there to change it. He's there to transform it. Because this God brings life and light and love and beauty. And it's like he's saying, wow, that's a mess. Look what I can do with that. And he pushes back the darkness and he brings this beautiful creation that all is part of the story. And when you show him something, you go, what are you going to do with this mess? God says, I, I'm good at this. And so that's how you live your story. You say, God, I got a tohu vohu going on right now. Will you come and hover in it? Don't wait till I get it cleaned up. Will you be in the mess? That I'm experiencing right now, whatever confusion or loss you're feeling, whatever earthly dilemma that you have that leads you to beg God for a heavenly dilemma, you know that the Spirit of God is there and He's near and He's not abandoned you and there is hope for your life and you are not in that black hole all by yourself because that is not how the story ends with God. The same God. Who brought light into darkness at the beginning will bring light into your story. The same God who brings life out of nothing can bring life to whatever thing that you're so sure is dead. And the same God who brought love to his creation will bring love to you. That's a window of hope. I hope you have open full into your life. If you have that, it'll change your story. That's God's story. Not everyone believes this stuff. Not everyone writes their story this way. I hope you do. Let me give you a second window of hope right here in Genesis. And that's, that's the one that we find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. At the result of sin, we sometimes call the fall, where everything kind of innocence lost and just everything's broken. And there's these kind of curses or results, consequences that come and for the man and the woman and everything's harder and grinding it out. But then there's stuff for the, for the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God is speaking and says to Satan, You will strike and bruise the heel of the seed of the offspring of Adam and Eve, but he will crush your head. I like that. I like that. He's saying, You know what? The, the seed of the offspring, I mean, we're part of the offspring of Adam and Eve. And, and, and he says, You know what? You're gonna, you're gonna bite, and you're gonna do some damage. They're gonna live with some sickness and some selfishness and some sin and some sorrow and some death and all of that hardship. Yep, yep, you know. But this is God's way of saying, as He's addressing this this serpent representing the devil himself. He's saying, "You can laugh now if you want to, buddy, but you and I both know this ain't over. You won a little battle here, but you ain't gonna win this war." Okay. And I know that I know they're going to live with a reality with you crawling around, whispering in their ear, trying to get trying to get everyone to kind of follow your story. But you know what? I'm going to I'm going to come down there. I'm going to come in the form of my own son. Jesus Christ who's also going to come to the same offspring of Adam and Eve. And you're going to try to get him good, too. You're going to whisper in his ear. You're going to put him in the tomb and you're going to think you really got him. But you know what? It's about the same as a little snake nibbling on the heel of Jesus. And when he's ready and full time, he's going to look down. He's just going to squash your big, fat, ugly head. That's what's going on here in the book of Genesis. Squish your head like a little grape. You're going to bruise his heel on Friday, but he's going to squish your head on Sunday. And you remember that next time you feel like Satan's biting at your heels. Romans 16, 20 says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Hebrews 2 says that since the children have flesh and blood, that's we are, we're, we're children of Adam and Eve. He too, Jesus, shared their humanity. Why? So that by his death, he would destroy him who holds the power of death. Who is that? Just in case we're wondering. That is the devil, the Bible says. And therefore, we would free all of us whose lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. You can have your story read like this. I ain't afraid of death. If that ain't your story, you need God's story in your story. Okay? You need God's story in your story. That's why we could stand yesterday with our dear friends, my friend Nancy, who died. We, set, we, we, we wept together, but we thank God together that she's more alive today than she's ever been. Because that was her story. I hope it's your story. The third window of hope I want to give you right now is from Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Remember, right after Adam and Eve sinned, what does the Bible say they did? Well, they went and they got fig leaves and they covered their nakedness. It's kind of a tragic scene in a way. Now, we don't know why that wasn't maybe adequate or maybe they shrunk in the wash. We don't know why. But here's, here's what happened. Genesis 3.21 says, The Lord God came and He made garments of skin for Adam, his wife, and, and his wife and clothed them. Isn't that a gracious thing of God to do? To come and say, here, let me help you. Put that on. Even though it was because of the sin that they committed against Him, He was gracious to come to them. And you pick up what's going on here. God puts on animal skins over them, which meant friends that he took one of the animals, one of the creatures that he loved, and he sacrificed it in order to cover their shame, and blood was shed to cover their their sin hebrews nine twenty two in the New Testament says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, and God was just saying what he wants to say to you and to me today that he not only did he do this for Adam and Eve where he shed life to cover their shame, he gave his own son that Jesus was the Lamb of God whose blood covers our shame. We're clothed with Christ and you can stand naked and not ashamed before God, not because of anything you've done, but because God graciously comes and provides that covering through his son Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that comes in his name and that's a window of hope that says you don't have to try to live your life being good enough for God because you're not you never will be that's a that's a futile story with a tragic ending but if you will just say god here i am my little fig leaves trying to be good enough god will come and he will provide through jesus exactly what you need to cover your sin and your shame and you will stand one day before god when it's your turn to go just like Nancy went this weekend you'll stand before god and Buck naked in who you are and no shame. And God will say, welcome home. And that's what I call a happy ending to a story. And the best part of the story is that's just the beginning. I hope you got those windows of hope in your life. Let's pray. God, you created everything and we thank you for that. We're sorry that we've been part of messing it up. And we thank you most of all that you're in a rescue mission. To bring us back into relationship with you. God I pray for anyone who is in chaos. That they will find your hope. I pray for anyone today. Who needs to just be reminded. That you will crush and have already crushed. The head of Satan. And thank you for Jesus who covers our shame. So we might stand before you. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.